Thank you for tuning in to Bible Storming Podcast, a work of Scattered Abroad, which is overseen by the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. You can find our website at scatteredabroad.org. In this podcast, our aim is to help you be intentional in how you think about the Bible. It is more than just reading the words. It is about diving deep into the text. So let's study together. Here is your host, Daniel Webster. What is up, Bible Stormers? It's your boy D-Web. We are back with the Bible Storming Podcast, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, one of my good friends, Johnny Royal. Talk to me, Johnny. What's up, man? Daniel, I, I just want to thank you for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. Uh, man, we've been talking all day and been having some good conversations and uh, learning a lot, but I'm realizing how much I don't know on this subject. Man, we are in over our heads. There's nothing like this subject to make you realize how much you really need to learn, how much you need to study, how much you need to grow. So we are in for a treat today if you like deep Bible study and and listening to us make fools of ourselves. So today we are talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Johnny, what, what do we mean when we talk about the incarnation? In a word, I think uh, incarnation is is God in the flesh. That's kind of the idea that we get behind it. And I think of Matthew one twenty three, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so it's this idea that, that God is going to be with man. He's going to be incarnate. He's going to put on flesh. Right. He's, he's becoming a human. That's, that's kind of the idea that we're, we were talking about. It's like enfleshment almost is literally what incarnation means. You, you see this idea in John chapter one, verse 14, where John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and really with, with John introducing that concept into our minds, we come to a point that I think is really important to, to think about as we begin this discussion on the incarnation of Jesus. And that is notice what John what, what word John uses to refer to the, the man whom we call Jesus Christ in this verse. He, he refers to him as the word. Johnny, could you talk for just a minute about, about why John ch- chose that designation to refer to this, this being whom we know as Jesus? Yeah. And so, you know, in the Greek there, the logos, and I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, the first place my mind goes is back to creation. Uh, John makes some allusions there in the book that uses some symbols. He says, uh, Jesus is the Logos. He's the word. He's the light. He's the life. And you go back to Genesis and all of these things are, are being created, the light and life. And it's all being done through the word. And so in part, I think he's showing that Jesus was God and he was there at the beginning. Uh, but another reason I think is because of of what a word is. It's expressing something. And Jesus is, what, what does Hebrews say? The express image of God. And so he's, right, right. he's, he's the, ex, the expressed idea of God as a, as a person. I love that. I think both of, of those concepts that you just brought up are apparent here in John 1. So what, with the first thing that you brought up about going back to Genesis and how Jesus was the word really in creation and creating the universe, in the very beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of John's gospel account, he says, in the beginning, referring us back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 in our minds, he says, in the beginning 
was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So, so you see right there him pointing us back. And he, like you said, he does that over and over in his gospel, pointing us back to the very beginning of it all. And then also the second concept that you brought up about how Jesus is for God's character, what a word is for, for our thoughts. It's almost like a a word is a vehicle of thought, right? It's how we communicate with each other. It's how we tell each other about who we are and what we think. Well, it's the same with Jesus. Jesus is the word to God in, in the sense that he is the vehicle through which God has, has revealed himself to humanity. You really see that in verse 18 of John one, where, where John says that no one has seen God at any time, but what, what's the contrast to that, John? Tell us, no one's seen God at any time. But then he says that the only begotten son who, who's in the bosom of the father, he has revealed him. He has shown him to us. The word has come to earth and expressed God's character, God's thoughts in a such a way that the, the, maybe we could say the, the most full way that man could comprehend. And to the fullest extent that we could comprehend the nature of God, Jesus revealed that to us. So I really think that's what John is talking about, like you were talking about, with with referring to Jesus as the Word. So we're going to try to do that, refer to him as the Logos throughout our discussion today as as much as we can. We'll probably slip up and call him Jesus more often, but I think it's, it's more accurate almost to refer to him as the Logos since... Jesus, you know, started at a specific point in time and the logos is what he has been really for eternity. So yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Another thing that I just thought of is uh, while we were talking about this, I thought about why is the incarnation important? And I thought about um, yeah. first Timothy two, five, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then also Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, uh, excuse me, sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now I know those are both verses that we're going to talk more about later, but incarnation qualified God to be the perfect mediator and the perfect yeah, how, high how priest. How else could he sympathize with us? Yeah. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> yeah, oh, sympathize. Oh man. <laughs> no, no, you're good, dude. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no. So I want to rephrase a question that you kind of just brought up about why the incarnation was important. I want to shoot it right back at you. Why was the incarnation necessary? Give you a second to think about that. Why did God do it that way? Did, did he have to do it that way? In order for him to save man, did he have to take on a human form? Was it necessary? What are your thoughts on that? Just your, your initial reaction. Yeah. So Theologically, it's hard for me to say what God has to do and, right, and, right. and doesn't have to do, but I do think that God did that for an important reason. And so I imagine God can do anything that he wants with the sovereign will, but why did he choose to do that? Why did he choose that, that, that the way of redemption for man was going to be through sending... Um, the Lagos becoming his nice, son nice. to to die on the cross. Yeah, so I, I kind of threw that at you, and I I prepared beforehand for that question. So, uh, you know, Johnny had no idea I was going to ask that, but I, I was prepared to look good if he <laughs> fumbled. <laughs> so Thomas Aquinas has a really famous answer to this question. Basically, he says that 
Well, no, it wasn't strictly necessary for God to take on human form. Like in his infinite power and wisdom, it seems like like God could have accomplished the same thing another way. So it, it wasn't in the strictest sense necessary for Jesus to become a human and in so doing, give us the opportunity to be saved. But on the other hand, it was necessary in a looser sense, in the sense that it's necessary for me if I'm trying to get to China to take a plane. Well, could I get there another way? Sure, I could hike to the ocean and charter a boat and eventually get there, but that's not the most efficient way. That's, that's not the best way to get to China from where I'm at in, in the central U.S. So by that second kind of necessity, the, the kind of looser kind of necessity, the incarnation was necessary because it was the most efficient, beautiful, compelling way for God to save us. And really, I think that that is my favorite concept uh, that surrounds the incarnation. And that is when you think about the word becoming flesh, that's, that's such a gritty concept, right? That's such an earthy, almost a, a dirty concept. It, it's so realistic and that resonates with me. It, it's not some kind of a philosophical construction. It, it's not just, just spiritual talk and, and like, like, in an air-conditioned church building. It's not long words and concepts like propitiation and atonement. It's, it's real, right? It's dirty. It's love. And I want to get your thoughts on that in just a second. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. But first, I want to, I'm going to refer to what John says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9 when he says that the love of God was revealed to us in, in God's act of sending Jesus, sending the Logos into the world that we might live through him. So John says that the ultimate act, the way that we know what love looks like, we've been talking on the Bible Storming podcast past few weeks about the agape love of God. So he says the, the, the way that we, we see what agape looks like in real life is through this act of the incarnation. This is the central act to really the history of humanity. So Johnny, talk to me, man. What are you thinking with what I'm saying over here? Yeah. So as you were talking, I was just thinking about Christianity as as a religion. And obviously there are other world religions. And you know, you can compare and, and contrast um, why Christianity is true and the other ones are are not, uh, and, and you can do that in any number of ways. But one of the things that that I think draws me to Christianity, and and makes me realize that there's something more to it than than some guy just coming up with a religion, is that it isn't a god um, telling people to to when you when you look at uh, Islam for for example, and how people have have said go go die for your god. Uh, go, 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 you know, commit suicide for your God. It's really the exact opposite where you have God mm, saying, I'm yeah. going to die for you. Mm. Man. Yeah. When you think about this, this concept of the incarnation, I really think that this is the key to Christianity, right? That this is what differentiates it from every other worldview, from every other religion. It's, it's more than being good people, right? It's it's about more than doing good things. It's it's about more than going to heaven. The incarnation is the essence of, of Christianity. It, it's this strange claim that God became one of us, right? 
Like, like everything else in Christianity is a footnote to that truth. Everything else revolves around that reality. What we're talking about today, what we're struggling through today, trying to understand is really what it's all about. This is what it all comes down to. So with that said, let's let's start to dive in to the reason why we keep talking about how uh, confused we are. <laughs> well, let's start diving into the to the deeper side of the incarnation. And really, I want to start with kind of a, a phrase that is is well known outside of like spiritual theological circles, and that is that good fences make good neighbors. In other words, having clear boundaries is an essential part of healthy relationships. Everybody needs to know who you are and what the boundaries are between each of you. Now, that's true in relationships. That's also true in theology. It's important to have some kind of boundary markers when we enter into into a a discussion on on a really deep topic like the incarnation. We need to have things that that we know are true, right? Things that, that we know that are true that have to do with this topic. So as we try to figure out some of the deeper truths, some of the maybe the mysteries, then we we know that we have to stay within these boundaries, right? So Johnny and I have kind of like talked beforehand, and through our study, we we have like four fence posts almost that we want to set up that we both agree on concerning the incarnation, and then kind of go from there into trying to figure out what, what we might say, trying to figure out the incarnation. So the the very first one is that Jesus, the the Logos, when he came to earth, he was 100% God. Before he came to earth, while he was on earth, after he came to earth, he was 100% God. He never gave up any part, any, any essential part of being a divine being. Okay, so Johnny... I'm about to give a, a verse that I think proves this, and I want you to hop in right after this. Let us know what you're thinking. Okay. John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And and I have, like, I'm looking at, I don't even know, dozens of verses right now that I think prove the divinity of Christ both now and while he also was on earth. Uh, but I think that one is, is really succinct and really powerful. I and the Father are one. What do you think? Yeah, I think that there's three things that you have to consider. Um, and, and three time spans. So you have to look at, and, and, and I say that because there, this is where the arguments are made with people in, in theological circles. So mm. you look at the life, uh, the, the pre-incarnate life of Christ, the incarnate life of Christ, and mm-hmm. the post. And so uh, the post-incarnate life of Christ. And so after he, he's ascended back into heaven. And so you go to the scriptures and, you know, we claim it, but is it there to say that at each of these points... He was divine, that he was God. And I think the most relevant one is that middle for what we're discussing today. Right, yeah. Uh, And so was he God? Was he divine during his life? I think you hit it right there with John 10. John is probably the easiest book to go to and find that claim (laughs) uh, fulfilled. Go back to John 1.1, the word was God. Um, And then you look at the claims of, of the inspired men in the Bible. And so uh, Jesus claims to be God. John 8, 56 through 58, you can kind of read through that and get the context. But Jesus is making this argument, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, mm-hmm. that's a clear reference back to the I am of Exodus, uh, Yahweh. Right, Exodus three fourteen. <clears throat> but also uh, that, that Jesus himself 
is is the existing one. He's he's the one that is. He wasn't created. He just is. Uh, Peter calls right, him a necessary attribute of God. Yep. Peter calls him the son of God, Matthew 16, 16 through 18. John, mm-hmm. uh, the baptizer calls him the son of God later on in John one thirty four. And something that I find interesting is, uh, it's just one of those accounts that that's so different from, from, from our everyday occurrence, but the demons called him the son of God <laughs> yeah. in Luke four forty one. they recognized that. I love that you're bringing up the concept of his being the son of God. And that's something that's affirmed really throughout the New Testament, almost in every book, if not every book. And and to our modern years, we, we might not realize really what that entails, what the significance of that phrase is. But think about how Jesus referred to himself as the son of man often in the Gospels. I think about, you know, one example being Luke 19, 10. So what that meant was that he was human, right? That he was the son of man. And to the Jewish mind, that meant he was human. And when he, so he referred to himself as the son of God. When he did that, he was, he was claiming to be divine. And you can kind of see that and see how the Jewish mind took that in, in John chapter 5 and verse 18 where John tells us that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Now, notice that what that did. He's calling God his father, son of God, making himself equal with God. So to, to the Jewish mind, that's what this meant. Him calling himself the son of God meant that he was divine. And, and that's a claim that, you, like you were saying, we see all over the pages of the New Testament. So Really, the, the claim that Jesus is, is 100% God is foolproof when you look at the Bible and when you study through the New Testament. Now, the second fence that we want to put up is that Jesus was, and I say we want to put up, second fence that, that we see in the text of the New Testament is that Jesus was 100% human. 100% human. First John 4, 2 John sums it up pretty well. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Doesn't get too much clearer than that. Jesus Christ was 100% human. Johnny, want to add anything? Yeah, uh, just the idea, and that you already started to mention it, but but I think it's very important to the discussion talking about the nature of of the Lagos and the nature of Jesus as a man. And I think that, you know, nothing in the Bible is there by accident. And so son of God and son of man, Jesus calls himself both. And I don't think that's Mm -hmm. to confuse people, but that's to uncover a truth and that Jesus was God, but he was also man. He's, he's the only uh, being that will ever be that is God and man. And so talking about the fence that, that the Bible uh, puts up, on on this uh, discussion on the nature of Jesus is that he is the son of man and that he is man. Uh, and so I, I thought of Matthew 9, um, 5 through 6, and there he heals the paralytic. Uh, and, and he's trying to show that that he is God. He is able to forgive sins. And he shows that to the Pharisees, that, that he has uh, authority given to him by the Father. The Father. Uh, and part of that text says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And I, so, so I think that one text kind of has the two 
natures of Christ brought out. Uh, and then the other verse yeah. that comes to mind, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both mm. prayers and supplications without crying and tears to the one mm. able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his pity. Right. So he, you know, the scriptures are clear. He he came in the flesh, but with those first two fences that we we've put up, comes a question. And and if you're a New Testament student, it, it might have arisen in your mind. So what do we do with Philippians 2, right? What do we do with, with Philippians 2, specifically verses 5 through 11, where I, th- I think it's verse 8, where Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. So what do we do with that? We're, we're, did, did Jesus empty himself of divinity that's that's what paul kind of seems to be saying on the surface right where he he emptied himself of the divine attributes when he came to earth and became a man so what do we do with that how do we reconcile these truths i think that text would be a lot harder to deal with if the the premise that jesus was god on earth wasn't so clear throughout scriptures right uh, and so we, we interpret this text in the light of all those other clear scriptures. Uh, and so what did he give up? Or excuse me, what what did he give up? Yeah. Uh, he gave up, well, the context is uh, humility. There was some, some pride there. And Jesus was willing to give up this idea of, of being equal to the Father. He was willing to give that up to become man. Uh, and so the the uh, glory that would have went along with that, uh, in a sense, I think the text says the reputation, and I'm not so sure yeah. that, that we understand that to to its clearest. Yeah, and fully fully appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right on the right track because when you look at it really in the context and and starting in verse five, going down through verse 11, it really seems like the context is Paul is trying to take an, a lesson from Jesus and apply it to the lives of these Philippian believers, right? He, he's saying, look, you guys need to be humble. <laughs> you need to get rid of your pride and look what happens when you do. That's that's kind of his argument here, just to sum it up very briefly. So he's he's saying he says in verse five, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look, look, Jesus had this this mindset about him. You need to have the same thing. He had this glory with the Father. He had this this status with the Father. And then he emptied himself of that status. He he took upon himself the, the form of a man. He he looked like a man. He he became a bondservant. He humbled himself, Paul says, by becoming obedient to the point of death. It, it's it's this emptying of this this status, this glory that he had with the Father. It's not his per se emptying himself of any like necessary divine attributes. So I think that's how you, you kind of reconcile yeah. that text with those truths. I've always thought of it in kind of, um, we don't really understand how, we, we can't comprehend how far greater God is above man. So I, I've always kind of yeah. thought of it in an analogy that's that doesn't do it justice, but it's simpler to understand. Like, imagine uh, you, 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 the, the time setting is, is medieval times, and you imagine when there's there's kings and there's there's these serfs or peasants, and imagine that the king left his castle 
to not only to go live as a peasant, not to only live with the peasants, but to become a servant of the peasants and die for the peasants. And so the gap between uh, the esteem of the king and the peasants is magnified to infinity between the gap between God and his creation. Yet Jesus in, in, in divine humility was willing to do that. And so that doesn't mean that the king of that analogy would stop being the king. It just means that that the king was humble enough to live as a servant of the serfs. Yeah, I love that thought. And really what, what you're kind of illustrating this with is something that Kierkegaard brought up years ago. And and he kind of he illustrated the the incarnation of Christ with the the illustration of a young prince who's or or a powerful king who's walking down the road and he sees this this beautiful peasant girl in the field and and he's just immediately just smitten with her he 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 just falls in love right there but because of his high office he can't just walk over to her and try to win her heart because then you know it doesn't feel like true love but also he can't send somebody to go and and compel her to come to him because still it's it's not true love it's it's not what he's looking for it's not what he wants from her it's not a true relationship so what does he do well in, instead of of all those other options he takes off his royal robes he he leaves his palace he puts on peasant garments and he goes and he starts working in the field alongside her and you know, they, they strike up a conversation and that conversation becomes a relationship and, and the re- relationship becomes love and, and the love becomes so deep that she will give her life to be with him. It doesn't matter that he's a peasant and it's only then that he's free to reveal his true identity. And, and that's what God did for us. He gave up his, like we were talking about in, in Philippians 2, Christ gave up that status. He gave up that glory that he had with the Father in heaven. Because that was, thinking back to what Aquinas said, that was the, the best way, the, the most efficient way to save us, to have that relationship with us that he so dearly and, and desperately wants. And how, how beautiful of a picture is that? How, what does that tell us about how how much value we have to God. Anyways, we're, 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 we're making this too long, <laughs> too long, longer than it has to be. So let's, let's take a step forward. We have two fences so far, two fence posts, right? We have 100% God, 100% human. Now let's add a third one. 100% God, 100% human in one person. Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, 100% God, 100% man, in one person, last one, at one time. Now, we get this kind of just common sense that, <laughs> that they existed in the person Jesus Christ at the same time. But then, think about this. We, we normally think about the incarnation of Jesus being constrained to those, those 30 or so years when he was on earth. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says something that, that is mind-blowing. He refers to the Logos, to Jesus, as the man, Christ Jesus. Now, this was written years after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. So at this point, he's, he's at heaven, at the right hand of God, but he's still a man. 
the incarnation is not limited to those 30 years. And we kind of hinted at this earlier, and I'm not sure we can understand all the implications of this, but I think we can at least know that the incarnation was not limited to those 30 years. When we say the last fence post is that he was 100% God, 100% man in one person at one time, that time is still, it's still in existence, right? It's today. The incarnation is still going on in at least some sense. He is still man, while obviously still being 100% God. Yeah, it seems like that, you know, at the very beginning, I referenced 1 Timothy 2.5 and Hebrews 4.15 and talked about how Jesus, uh, since he was God, and I say was, since he was and is God and (laughs) man, then he serves... Um, forever from from this point on is a perfect mediator and a perfect high priest for us. Uh, if if he ceased to be man, it, it just wouldn't be uh the same. But now he's this eternal bridge between us and God. Right, and and kind of along that thought, I want to talk about as we kind of bring this episode to a close, how beautiful this is. Just just ponder with me for a moment how majestic this is. So in Athanasius' great work, his, his, his groundbreaking work on the incarnation, he basically presents this, this idea. It's, it's the thought that if Jesus is, is not God, and this is kind of tying together all these, these fence posts, if Jesus is not God, then we're not saved. We can't save ourselves, right? You and I are, are both in the same mess. We're, we're both in this this dysfunctional family of, of sinful humanity, right? It's, it's like someone who's caught up in addiction can't lift themselves out of it. Therefore, we needed a higher power to break into our dysfunction and fix it. On the other hand, if Jesus is not truly human, then we're not saved. Now, notice what he did there. Athanasius puts the stress on different words. He's not divine. We're not saved. He's not, he, he's not human. We are not saved. Because in, in, his, in his humanity, he entered, as it were, into the inner workings of our humanity and remade it from the inside. Now, C.S. Lewis presents the, the image of a broken machine, and this machine can't fix itself. Like a broken toaster can't fix itself, but, but the one that can is the one who made the toaster, right? It's, it's the one who knows it from the inside. It's the one who gets his hands dirty. He goes in, inside the works of this toaster to remake it. And I think that's really a good analogy for the incarnation. We're like broken toasters. <laughs> We're sinners. We're stuck in our sin. We can't save ourselves and and line up broken toasters all the way to the end of the world. They're not going to fix the broken toasters. They're all in the same mess. We're all in the same mess. For, for the toasters, someone has to come from outside of that world and enter into the works, the, the mechanics of that toaster to remake it. Now, line up philosophers and social activists and politicians and poets to the end of the world, they can't solve our problem because they're in the same mess we are, right? We're all on the same boat and we're all seasick. Bring Aristotle and Plato and Einstein. They can't solve the problem. Only God can solve the problem. 
Now, he also can't do it, and at least not optimally. Th- think about Thomas Aquinas. He can't do it by staying at a distance up in heaven and clearing his throat and saying, I pronounce you forgiven, right? Instead, he comes down into the messiness of our humanity with the intent to rework it, to remake it from the inside. That's the beauty that we're talking about here with the incarnation. It changes everything about our lives. And that's why you might feel like we're we're kind of splitting theological hairs in this episode, but it's so important to make sure that that we're on the same page with, with something as deep as this topic. Because by setting up these fences, by by laying this groundwork, we make sure that whatever conclusions we come to, we're at least on solid ground, right? So, thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe button, hit the hit the rating button, hit the five stars. Give us a review, and until next time, keep on Bible storming. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Scattered Abroad Network. If you would like to email us, you can do so at thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. That's thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. Remember, you can check the show notes below for all of our social media platform links. Also, don't forget that you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and please leave us a rating or review. We hope and pray that this has helped you grow closer to Christ, even though we are scattered abroad. May God bless you.